We're talking tonight about covenants. And one of the things that I try to emphasize, not only in this word study, but throughout all of my uh, preaching and teaching, is for us to have a better understanding of the big picture story of Scripture. That is, instead of seeing little parts in isolation, how does this all fit together? What's the, the big picture point? The big story of Scripture is all about God's covenants, both with individuals and with groups of people. The teachings of both the Old Testament and the New Testament are presented in a covenant framework. And there's a sense in which you can't even really understand the story of the Bible if you don't understand this idea of covenant. Now, of course, covenant is a word that we don't use all that often in English. We know what it means, I suppose, but it's not something that we use on a day-to-day -day basis. But covenant literally means a coming together. And the word indicates that two parties have made an agreement, and that agreement is characterized by promises, by stipulations, by responsibilities and obligations. That means that covenant fundamentally is about relationship. Specifically in Scripture, it's primarily about the relationship that God seeks to have with human beings. That's the gist of that repeated covenant refrain. We find it over and over and over again. I will be your God and you will be my people. So a covenant is a relationship. And that relationship is based on promises or on sworn oaths. Now, Covenants are not something that just appear in Scripture out of thin air. This is rooted in ancient Near Eastern practice. That is, these were what you would call contractual arrangements, just along the lines of legal relationships that we have today. And so what we see in Scripture, there are parallels that we find in ancient history. It draws on this common framework. So there were parity covenants, that is, relationships that were entered into where the parties were equal, at least in some sense. A good example is the covenant that Laban enters into with Jacob or that David enters into with Jonathan to you know, watch over each other and over their families. But you can hardly conceive of a parity covenant with God, can you? I mean, after all, no human being is the equal of God. And accordingly, no covenant that God makes is along these lines. Human beings never initiate the covenant with God. God is always the one who extends that offer. He's the one who's initiating the relationship. He's the one who draws up the conditions. So if you want to talk about parallels in the ancient world, the covenants that God establishes are more along the lines of those that a sovereign extended towards his subjects. That is where a, a king, a lord, would offer his protection to people. He would offer to do things for them. He's going to treat them well. And in return, 
they need to do things for him. That is, their stipulations, they have to keep up their part of the bargain in order to continue to enjoy his good favor. Now, there were different types of covenants that sovereigns made with uh, their subjects. there's some thought about what parallels we have in Scripture, but in, in general, the two types that we see or the parallels we find in the ancient world are charters and treaties. So God, first of all, makes covenants with individuals, and we can refer to those as, as charters. That's their parallel in the ancient world. That is, God bound himself by an oath to a certain person, to an individual. He granted favors to that chosen person, as well as to their descendants or to others who were associated with them. The very first covenant we find in Scripture is like this, the one God makes with Noah back in Genesis chapter 9. God also makes an individual covenant with Phinehas, for example, that his descendants are going to be priests. But most important along this line are the individual covenants God makes with Abraham and with David. So God bound himself in a covenant with Abraham, and you remember that this carried the promise that all nations of the earth would be blessed through him, Genesis chapter 12. Later on, God adds as promises of this covenant that Abraham will be blessed with many descendants, Genesis chapter 15, and that they would be given a land, Genesis chapter 17. And there was a sign attached to this covenant circumcision. And that sign was so important, so identifying with the covenant, that the covenant sometimes becomes known as the covenant of circumcision. Uh, Stephen calls it that in Acts chapter 7. But just because God makes it with an individual, as we said, this can continue through his descendants. And so this covenant promise continued through Isaac and Jacob. And it's summed up really well. First Chronicles 16 Uh, beginning in verse 14. This is in the context of a song uh, of David, David giving thanks here. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. Now, I say this is in a song. A song is poetry. And remember that Hebrew poetry is characterized by parallelism. That is where you have ideas repeated over and over again. Well, thinking about that helps us to understand more about what a covenant is. Look at the terms that are used in parallel here. Judgments, the word that he commanded, his sworn promise, his statute, You see, the emphasis here is clearly on God's initiative, his promise, his decree, his commandments. God also made a unilateral covenant with David, and you'll probably remember this. God promised that a descendant of David would sit on his throne forever. The first time that's given is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, Later on, when that covenant promise is repeated, it's uh, occasionally accompanied with this stipulation that individual members of that household of David have to continue to be faithful to God in order for them personally to enjoy his favor. But this covenant promise that a descendant of David is going to sit on the throne, that becomes extremely important for the prophetic hope 
of Israel. God also makes a covenant with the entire nation of Israel, the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant. Now, God's initiative lies behind this too, but this is different than the covenant God makes with individuals. And I mentioned charters and treaties. This is more along the lines of a treaty. It's different for one thing on the surface level because he enters into it with a group of people. It's not just with one individual and their descendants by proxy. It's with a a whole entire group here. But it's also different in that it's expressly accompanied by stipulations. You know, because of Abraham's faith, God just promised to bless him. But here we have some specific regulations laid down. And if you look at Exodus chapter 19, we see the background to this covenant God establishes with Israel. God offered this covenant relationship on the basis of his gracious act of deliverance. That is what he did in the Exodus. He brought the Israelites up out of bondage in Egypt, and then he adds this requirement in offering the relationship that they obey him. Exodus 19, verse 4, he recites what he's done. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. He's telling Moses that. God did for Israel what she couldn't do for herself. Israel was powerless. They couldn't save themselves, deliver themselves. And he follows that up with giving the law. That is, these are the stipulations to the covenant. Here's what you need to keep in order to be in this relationship with me. He codifies that response that's required. Well, out of gratitude for what God had done for them, and because they want to be in a relationship with him, they've experienced his grace. If you notice in the following verses, the people agree to keep it. They bound themselves to it without even yet knowing what they were going to have to do. Verse 7, Moses came and he called the elders of the people and he set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now the Mosaic covenant was conditional. We see that even in the prologue here. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. The conditions are spelled out in the law. And this relationship of a benevolent sovereign bestowing his favor on his people, offering them his protection, that would continue just as long as they kept up their part of the bargain, as they kept the law. That's the conditions of the covenant. But of course, we all know the rest of the story. Israel didn't do that. They didn't keep the stipulations of the covenant. But before God had ever entered into that covenant relationship at Sinai, he had already entered into a covenant with Abraham. Remember? And so because of that covenant promise to Abraham, God didn't completely cut off his descendants. Disobedience could cause an individual to be cut out of that relationship. But God continued to remain faithful 
keeping up his end of the bargain, the promise that he'd made entering into that covenant with Abraham. But of course, because of these constant failures on the part of Israel to keep up their part of the covenant, and because of the punishment that resulted, God would have to act in a new way in order to establish a new covenant relationship with him, in order to actually accomplish what his people had failed to do. And so the prophets looked forward to a new covenant God would give. And the key passage here is what Brooks read a few moments ago from Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. I'm going to read it again just because this passage is so significant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. There's several items worth noting here just in this passage. The new covenant would be different from the one that he'd extended there at Sinai. Now, it would have the same result. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's something that we've actually seen before as far back as Leviticus. So that in itself isn't different. But the basis of the relationship is different. And it's different in two key ways that are spelled out in this text. First of all, the law would be written within. It would be on their hearts rather than written on tablets of stone like those Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from the mountain. And that way, everyone would know the Lord, Jeremiah says. The second key difference, the basis of that relationship would be the forgiveness of sins. I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So the differences in the new covenant and the old covenant are not so much in what God requires. Yeah, there's differences in the specifics, but it's not that God has no requirements. There's still stipulations. You still have to be faithful to him in order to remain in that covenant relationship. But the differences are in internalizing the law and in the means of forgiveness. And the consequence of everyone knowing the Lord is that this is something you enter into by choice. The old covenant, you didn't have a choice. You were born into it, right? By means of being a descendant of Abraham. And that's where that whole covenant of circumcision comes in. This, everyone knows the Lord. You enter into this by a conscious choice based on that knowledge. Now, there are other passages in the Old Testament that expand on this idea, what distinguishes the new covenant. Uh, We could look at several of them, but I just want to go to Ezekiel because Ezekiel has a good bit to say, say, one passage in particular. He talks about an everlasting covenant. He talks about a covenant of peace. But the most significant association is in chapter 36. 
Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 26, Ezekiel says, and this is God, he's speaking here for God. God gave him this word. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now you notice Ezekiel doesn't use the exact same terminology, but instead of talking about forgiveness here explicitly, he uses the terminology of purification here when he says that I will... Uh, give you a new heart, a new spirit, remove that heart of stone, cause you to walk in my statutes. If you go back to verse 25 in particular, and I should have started there actually, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. So that's the imagery of priestly purification, being washed with water. The same idea as being cleansed from your sins. The new heart and the new spirit that's put within, that enables people to keep God's ordinances, right? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That can be seen as equivalent to that law written on the heart in Jeremiah. So Ezekiel uses different language, but it's the, the same promise here. He's looking forward to the same thing. And in fact, in the very next chapter, continuing on this, down in verse number 27, it has the same promise. I will be their God and they shall be my people. If you were here Wednesday evening, Daniel gave his devotional and he talked about the new covenant and he talked about it as new and improved. And that's really what we're getting at here. There are a lot of ways that the new covenant is new, a lot of ways that it improves upon the old, but the chief ways are what we find here in Jeremiah, what we find in Ezekiel. The essence of the new covenant, the newness of it. What's new about the new covenant? Above all else, forgiveness of sins. It's full, it's final, it's complete. It doesn't require a sacrifice to be made again and again and again for your own personal sins or that yearly sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. God really will fully and finally forgive your sins. Remember iniquities no more. And secondly, the indwelling Holy Spirit. I will put my spirit within you, Ezekiel says. I will put my law in their hearts. You'll know it because it'll be written within. Everyone will know me, Jeremiah says. So this indwelling spirit, the spirit in the Old Testament is something that's just given to the leaders of God's people and it's something that's just occasional. That's not going to be the case now. This is going to be the abiding possession of all of God's people. This is what makes us the people of God. Forgiveness and the presence of God's spirit. Of course, in the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of these promises of the new covenant. Those covenants that God makes with Abraham and with David are important. They're both affirmed as being fulfilled in Christ. In fact, we see that implied in the very first verse of the New Testament, that genealogy of Jesus that we probably all think is not very important. We just skip over because it it's pretty boring, dry reading, so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. The genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
No accident that those two figures are mentioned there in that very first verse pointing us to this fulfillment. But Jesus is said to occupy the throne of David, right? We know that repeatedly in Acts. First and foremost, in the sermon Peter preaches on Pentecost, chapter 2, verses 30 through 32, he's seated on that throne of David. There's the fulfillment of that promise to make a king sit on that throne forever. And then secondly, the fulfillment of that covenant promise to Abraham. Paul talks about that more than once. His promise to Abraham still stands, but his descendants are no longer those descendants after the flesh. You're a child of Abraham if you have faith like Abraham. Paul talks about that at length in Romans 4. I encourage you to read that. We won't for time's sake. But he explains how this all works, sums it up in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 26. This is a passage that's familiar to us, but I'm not sure if we ever think about the way this connects to covenant. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, we all know that, right? Everybody here knows those two verses. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male nor female, you're all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Those who are baptized into Christ are in this covenant relationship with him. They're his people by faith, and that means that they're children of Abraham. We are heirs of that promise that God made to him way back in the long ago. Now, in contrast to the continuity of the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, that is, that those are fulfilled and ongoing in a sense, and that Christ sitting on the throne of David, we're sons of Abraham, we inherit that covenant relationship. The covenant God made with Israel on Mount Sinai is presented as obsolete. Now, there are a number of passages that talk about how Christians are not under the law. We know that. We have a new basis of our relationship with God. We're not bound by its rituals, by its ceremonies, by keeping all those stipulations laid out there back at the mountain. That new covenant is based on a new means of forgiveness, the way that Jeremiah pointed to. But in Romans 7, Paul talks about this. Verse 4 Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit." and not in the old way of the written code. Of course, if you want to see the most complete expression of how the old covenant is obsolete and we're under a new covenant, you go to the book of Hebrews. And Daniel talked about this too Wednesday night. And I would tell you, if you want to understand this, just read Hebrews. <laughs> read the whole book, especially read chapters 7 through 10. Uh, the author of Hebrews uses the word covenant 21 times. That's more than it's used in all the rest of the New Testament combined. Uh, but his point in Hebrews, the background seems to be that he's writing, of course, to Jewish Christians, hence the title. And 
whether from persecution or whether from social family pressure, who knows what, we try to reconstruct it, but the upshot is some of them evidently were thinking about going back to Judaism. That's what's more comfortable. They're thinking about going back into their old ways. And his point is, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to go back and live under that old inferior covenant instead of this new, better one? You have a better high priest. Those priests under Judaism, they died. We have a high priest that lives forever, after a better order, not of Aaron, of Melchizedek. He's actually entered into the true most holy place, not the one that the tabernacle and the temple foreshadowed. He's entered into the one in the heavens. And there's not a sacrifice that needs to be made year after year after year, like on the Day of Atonement. He's made the sacrifice once for all. And in fact, unlike those sacrifices that were dumb, unwilling animals, he's done it voluntarily with a perfect sacrifice. And these aren't even all the parallels that he draws out. He goes into more depth than this. But in particular, he quotes Jeremiah 31 there in chapter 8. And in leading into that, he says, in Christ, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. Then he talks about the faults of the old covenant. If it had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But there's fault in it. And that's when he quotes from Jeremiah, which we read earlier. And then he says emphatically, verse 13, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. That old one is done away with. Why would you want to go back to it? Because in Christ, we have a new, a better one built on better promises. In Jesus, God creates a new covenant people. Remember, covenant's all about relationship. This is about coming into a relationship with God. And we have a new basis of our relationship with God. Now our sins are are fully, completely forgiven. The Hebrews writer talks about that at length. Now we have the promise of his spirit as an abiding possession with us at all times. Inherent in the idea of covenant is community. There has to be a covenant people to be in this relationship with God. To be in a covenant with God is to be his people. Now you go back to Exodus. In the Exodus, God did for Israel what she couldn't do for herself. He graciously offered deliverance from the bondage that they were ensnared in down there in Egypt. And on the basis of what God had done, they entered into that relationship with him. They accepted the covenant that he was offering. You see, it's just the same way with us. In Christ, God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We were hopeless and helpless, just like Israel was way down there in Egypt. And God delivered us from bondage, just as he delivered them. He delivered us from the bondage of sin. And on the basis of that gracious act of deliverance, he offers us the opportunity to come into a covenant relationship with him. Now, Israel had a choice, remember? If you will keep covenant with me, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. They had a choice. They didn't have to enter into that. 
But based on what God had done for them, it's difficult to imagine they'd refuse. Considering, as the Hebrews writer says, we have a new and a better covenant mediated to us. We have the opportunity to refuse that covenant relationship. But it's difficult to imagine someone doing so if we really understand the ramifications of that. So the question for us tonight is, are we keeping our end of the bargain in terms of being in that covenant relationship with God? He extends that relationship, but a covenant is based on stipulations, obligations, responsibilities. We've sworn to do certain things. Are we upholding our end of the bargain? If we're not, then thankfully we have this promise of full and complete forgiveness if we'll just turn back to him and ask for it. If you're here this evening and in order to be back in that right covenant relationship with him, you need that forgiveness, then you have the opportunity to make your need known while we stand and while we sing. Let the heart and close thine eyes again.